Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. Now, I'm delighted to introduce our guest this week. She is a pillar of the UK food scene, having trained at Ballymaloo in Ireland, won MasterChef in 2005, and co-founded the Mexican restaurant Oaxaca. She's also an accomplished author and has just released her eighth book, Meat Free Mexican. She also sits on the board of Chefs in Schools, a charity which we touched on briefly. She is, of course, Thomasina Myers and was a superb guest. Her passion for food in Mexico is infectious. In fact, after recording it, I spent about half an hour looking for flights to Mexico City. Thomasina was talking about sustainability in the kitchen long before many others and has always been a central part of the philosophy of Oaxaca. Now, I hope you enjoyed this one. I really enjoyed recording it. So without further ado, this is the Wine Best Podcast. Thomasina Myers, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thomasina, how did you start your career? That is a good question. I think I started my career since I cook for a living. I think I started my career at about six when I was not very good at playing at the toy farm that my parents bought me for Christmas. Really bored me, much to their frustration. I liked being next to my mother. I kind of felt safe next to her. So I used to hang out in the kitchen with her. My brother and sister were brilliant at getting fascinated by the toys. I was fascinated by what she was doing in all these pots and pans. She was brilliant at uh, chopping an onion and sweating it down and getting lots of flavor from it. And I used to just love how she created like delicious things from really simple ingredients. And I wanted to know how she did it and why she did it. And she just taught me along the way. So I guess that's the start of it all. So that was the start. I mean, that was when you were six, when you left university and sort of started to think about doing stuff for work. Did you go straight into it or did you have a formative career as well? I actually, I did lots of jobs whilst at school still, lots of work experience. And then I think I even did an enterprise project in my last year at school. And then actually I had a year between school and university and I was a VAT consultant with Arthur Anderson, which I've got to say was not the best suited career move, but I was very good at maths at school. I did maths masterclasses on Saturdays and I just, I really like maths. My grandfather's actually a mathematician and a, a kind of inventor. And so dad thought, you know, being an accountant, it's a great little string to your bow. So I did that. Didn't really enjoy it, I've got to say. Felt like it was um, not really a fun way to spend a year between school and university. But it was a good experience, I think. So I came away from that thinking I didn't want to be an accountant. It's good to knock the things off your list as much as decide what you do like to do. So when I left university where I studied modern languages and economics, I started off doing some marketing. So I worked with an internet strategy company in Soho in the middle of the dot-com boom. Now you'd think working in the middle of Soho, right in the middle of the dot-com boom in an internet strategy part of a marketing company would also be quite exciting. I didn't find it remotely exciting. So I, I thought, okay, strike that off your list. Do not get excited by marketing. But by that stage, I was a little bit puzzled. Surely someone would find that interesting. But no. I then tried various, I mean, lots of different things. I didn't really get excited by any of them. And I discovered that very quickly about myself, that unless I was really interested in something, I wasn't very good at showing my interest or sticking at it. So that was a good um, bit of self-knowledge to pick up. I had to be really fascinated by what I was doing. Uh, so I meandered through my 20s, trialing various different things and not doing very well at any of them until 
I was in a fashion show with Clarissa Dixon Wright, who I was really interested by because she was a brilliant TV chef that I watched, one of the two fat ladies. She was extremely bright. She was the youngest woman to the bar at age 21 at that time. And she'd given it all up for cooking. So I was really interested in her story. By this stage, I was 26 and I was definitely lagging behind my brighter friends who were forging ahead in various different careers. And she questioned me about my interest and she said, well, if you love cooking so much, why aren't you doing that? But in those days, cooking felt quite kind of either one or two things. You become a chef, get tattoos and you become a hellraiser or you become a like, nice chalet girl who does some catering in her spare time. And I didn't really identify with either route. But Clarissa said, don't be daft. There's lots of other things you can do. And she said, the first thing you should do is go to cooking school and you should go to Ballymaloo in Ireland. And I'm going to call up the owner. So she called up Doreen Allen, the owner of Ballymaloo Cookery School. And she got me to the top of the waiting list. And very luckily, someone dropped out. And within two months, I was driving my 2CV across the waters and into Ireland. Now, Ballymaloo is not just a cooking school. It was really ahead of its time. It still is ahead of its time in that it doesn't just teach recipes. It teaches a whole philosophy of food. And in fact, Doreen Allen was talking about soil 25 years ago. And I don't know whether your listeners know anything about soil, but we are in a soil crisis right now. 95% of the food that we grow in this world comes from soil. And yet we are eroding it at a rate of three football pitches a minute And so how we grow food next 50 years or even five exacerbated by Ukrainian crisis is of critical. In fact, I was talking to someone from the United Nations about food supply just yesterday about this problem. So Bali and Malou was talking about soil. And when I went to cooking school there, I learned about how food is grown, where it comes from, and really the importance of the product to begin with. And that has led to my fascination not only in enterprise, because they also were big on helping people think about careers and food, but also the whole bigger question over food and health and society, and also how it's linked to environmental health, human health, environmental health, and, and what you put in your body is all extremely linked. So that is um, you know, another part of my career now, but I'm sure we'll talk about that later. That was seven minutes. Are you going to expect seven minutes on every one of your questions, Doug? Am I a terrible guest? Yeah, yeah that was... <laughs> That was the most wonderful answer to how did you start your career? It's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And you got into everything, even you know, food sustainability and soil. But I want to maybe focus that after your time. And by the way, I got I would have given my left leg to have met Clarissa Dixon Wright on the on the platform. I was a big fan of the two fat ladies when they were on TV. But um when you left cooking school, what was the next step? What doors did you knock on after that? Uh, I think I was good at knocking on doors. That's one thing I think I was good at. Not good at sticking at the things I wasn't interested in, but I was very good at calling people up and asking for help. So I spent a lot of time after school just phoning people up and saying, can I come work for you? What are you doing? And some of those conversations were embarrassing, like really cringing. And some of them were really helpful. And I think it's very good advice for anyone with young children or any kind of people in their early 20s or even any stage of your life is to pick up the phone and talk to people because I think it is the most effective way of, of moving forward, actually. And then let's wind forward to Oaxaca. And, you know, this was a, a business that you founded basically, well, from scratch. I wonder when you were dreaming up 
were hacker and when you were thinking about opening a restaurant did you have non-negotiables in terms of of what you wanted the restaurant to look and feel like well i think the Oaxaca journey was a long time coming. So I kind of traveled to Mexico after my stint as a VAT consultant with the money that they kind of gave me. I went off to Mexico and I traveled all over Mexico and I had discovered this you know, incredible large country with many languages still spoken and with a cuisine or cuisines, they say, they say the cuisines of Mexico because the food's so regional and so different from, you know, Oaxaca, the food in Oaxaca, from the food in Yucatan to the Veracruz to Puebla, you know, it's completely different food. So I discovered in these travels of mine, which were kind of, you know, literally kind of stringing a hammock between two trees and hanging out by the beach or in the inland, that the food was just really extraordinary. And when I got back to the UK after that, I kept noticing that Mexican food wasn't really a feature anywhere. There was an amazing woman called Dodie Miller, who's a Canadian, who had a real Mexican street food stand in Portobello, probably about five years after I left school. She was really the only person I knew who's cooking actual Mexican food that wasn't Tex-Mex. And Tex-Mex is fine, right? But it's a food from Texas. It's a kind of very simplified version of northern Mexican food. So it was quite exciting that I discovered this incredible food but also quite baffling and interesting to me that it hadn't ever travelled and that pretty much I could see everyone around Europe and Australia thought that Tex-Mex was Mexican. So this idea was kind of a kernel in my head. And actually, when I went to cooking school when I was 26, the woman who ran it had great friends who lived in Oaxaca, which is a state in the Central Valley of Mexico. It's the second largest state in Mexico. So she was the only person I'd ever met who understood that Mexican food wasn't this kind of rather cheap, bean-heavy, meat-heavy cuisine that we all thought of. And so later on, I guess that propelled me. After cooking school, I went and learned how to make cheese on a cheese farm in West Cork, which was great. It was a step closer. Still didn't know what I wanted to do. I then managed to get a job running a food store called Valandry in, in central London, where I kind of took on all their marketing and helped build their website I mean, they were very kind of ahead of their time because they had a bakery in their basement and they were making handmade croissants and pain au chocolat, pain au which in those days kind of was quite hard to find a bakery that was making its own croissant. I would kind of set up a stall in the food lovers markets and we used to sell these amazing kind of bread products. And so I got a real taste of selling and of learning on my feet, but I was still not really closer to knowing what I wanted to do. And I thought a bit of travel might be a good idea and it was through, again, conversations with people. So I was, you know, thinking I might go to Spain. So I reached out to a guy called Sam Hart, who runs Quo because he had a great passion for all things Spanish. He's half Spanish, in fact. And I was asking him about if he knew any jobs going in Spain. And he was like, no, I don't know any jobs going on, you know, Barcelona or around there or northern Spain. But I do have a friend who's about to open an enormous cocktail bar and restaurant in Mexico City. He, and he needs someone to run the cocktail bar. So that was a great kind of way to get back to Mexico. This was 10 years after I'd first traveled there. Still, there was no Mexican food in, in London or anywhere in England. So I was just kind of fascinated by the fact this food seemed to be completely unknown. So I kind of literally jumped on a plane. I'd been working at the River Cafe for one day at this stage. I managed to get a job being a waitress there. And that first day, this guy called Crispin phoned me up and said, you've got the job if you want it. 
So I had a three-day crash course behind a pub because I'd never been behind a bar before and flew out to Mexico City and opened this cocktail bar and used it as a kind of springboard to really travel around the different regions and get to grips with why the food in Oaxaca was different from the food in Puebla and Veracruz and what you did with an ancho chili and why was the ancho chili different from the chipotle chili and then the pasilla chili, why was that flavour meant that it could work in that sauce or that mole? Or what about the serrano chili? When do you use that? And just trying to kind of get under the skin of this food that I found completely addictive, totally delicious. And I was confirmed in my belief that this food was delicious because you have your doubts. If you're the only person thinking that a cuisine is delicious, you think, well, maybe it's me. Maybe I'm just kind of dreaming it up. There's still no sign of this food in Britain. Maybe it's just a kind of mirage or fantasy. But then all my mates that I kind of got in Mexico City and I met this, we were in Mexican friends, friends from all over Europe, international crowd. And we were all obsessed. We went on these taco raids, you know, the weekends. We'd kind of go out late and then find the best taco stands. And really our mission was to kind of eat the best Mexican food. And, you know, we were all obsessed with it. It was just delicious. You know, there's nothing other other word for it. It was bloody delicious. And it was so different from anything I tried. So I got back from that year and I'd written a cookbook for charity in the meantime, which I kind of did as a project with a friend and you know I got back just thinking what am I going to do next and I think at that stage I entered MasterChef because I knew it was food I knew what I wanted to do I, I kind of hadn't ever been a chef so I was kind of a bit reticent about getting into a kitchen so I thought food writing might be quite a good idea so I started buying some food magazines saw this advert for MasterChef something propelled me to enter I didn't tell anyone it's a bit, a bit embarrassing to enter MasterChef was a new thing back then. You know, this wasn't a, we obviously now know that it's pretty well established. We all know the characters, et cetera, et cetera. But this was new, yeah. Yeah. So it must have been a bit of a leap of faith. Yeah, I mean, it's completely new. Like Lloyd Graceman had done it. I'd watched it when I was growing up when Lloyd Graceman did it. But it was a reformatted version. And I went to the audition and I talked very quickly. I was very overexcited. The producer said to me after, there was a producer who did MasterChef for 10 years. And she said to me at the end of her tenure, you're the only person in the audition in my 10 years where I knew immediately, like, you are in. <laughs> you are completely mad and you're in. <laughs> that's what she said to me. So I'm not that, I'm not sure that's a compliment. Sweet. But I was definitely passionate about food. Anyway, I got into MasterChef. It was terrifying. It was this crazy journey. But what was great about it was all these kind of full starts in business and trying to find a career. For the first time in what felt to be like a very long time, because I was good at school, but, you know, since then it had been kind of more of a tricky ride. But in that situation, they were like, you are really good at this. You know, you've won. Hats off. We think you should continue this. So that was a real kind of moment of like, okay, I'm on the right path. I'm doing something right for once at last. Thank God. So then straight after that, I mean, my prize, the MasterChef prize was to go and work for three months unpaid in the Gavroche's kitchen, which given by this stage, I've been in Mexico writing cookbooks for charity, you know, trying all sorts of careers. I mean, I was stony broke living on a friend's sofa and doing a further three months of unpaid work. I don't think neither practical nor really possible. So instead I went to work for Sky Gingell at Peacham Nurseries, which went on to get a Michelin star. And kind of in line with where my feelings around food, she was in this incredible kitchen garden. We were picking the fresh produce out of the ground. I mean, Sky's food she cooks at spring now is extraordinary. It's absolutely beautiful and 
deeply in tune with the seasons. She's got an amazing relationship with a farm called Fern Barrow. And in this whole philosophy of where your food comes from, how it's grown, that's part of her philosophy too. So we had a great meeting of common interest there. I learned amazing things from her because she really is an amazing chef. And while I was working in that kitchen, a friend from university had said, I really want you to meet this friend of mine. He wants to set up a restaurant and he's really interested in talking to you. And that was my business partner, Mott Selby. We sat in a pub and chatted about ideas. And I think he mentioned a burrito concept in Manchester he'd seen that he was quite excited about. And I remember saying to him, look, if you're interested in burritos, that's fine. But there's a whole lot more to Mexican food that's way more exciting. And I could show you some really incredible restaurants in Mexico. And he said, fine, show me. So we flew out. We had a crazy week dining largely on the incredible hospitality of Mexicans because they are one of the most generous and hospitable nations I've ever met. That all they want is to feed people and show them a good time. And we had an amazing week and we came back going, this is definitely something we want to do because there is nothing like this in the UK. So we then spent a year finding a site because in those days it was really hard finding a site. It was kind of pre the food revolution, I think of. I think there was an early revolution. This is about 2007, 2006, yeah. 2006, 2006, yeah. It's completely nuts to think that there wasn't a good Mexican in London in 2005, 2006. Like, what do people do, you know? What do they eat? Yeah, I know. I mean, it was, um, but there was. I mean, London was pretty diverse. So you could get Polish food and Ethiopian food and Japanese and Chinese. Mm. It's not like there wasn't international food. I mean, we're great, you know, we're travellers and adventurers. We've got great kind of diverse food in London particularly and in other cities around the country. Mm. But uh, but Mexican had definitely kind of slipped through the floorboards. But also it's hard to believe because it doesn't feel that long ago. But, you know, there was no Instagram, there's no Twitter, there's none of that social media either. So it really was, you know, different mm. world in some respects. And it was an exhilarating journey opening Oaxaca. We finally found a site that we could afford. It turned out to be enormous. It was an old Irish pub in a basement in Covent Garden. It was the first time someone took us seriously and said, no, no, we'll go with you. And, you know, my first thought was like, how on earth am I going to manage a kitchen so big? Because, I, you know, my kitchen experience was tiny mm. i spent very little time in kitchens much less run a kitchen so it really was a baptism of fire but we were kind of fueled by this knowledge that we had something completely different that no one else was doing and that passion you know we were a very young team and we we were fueled by that passion that we we're doing something different and also we knew that we wanted to be sustainable i mean i think when i first taught it started talking about sustainability to, to mark he thought, again, I was a little bit mad, but he very quickly listened and kind of really embraced it. So on the food side, which is my side, I worked with NGOs like Sustain to meet great organic farmers. And we were the second restaurant in London to compost our food waste. We had this amazing prototype where you could crush glass so that you could recycle it with less energy. And meanwhile, Mark was kind of recycling all the materials from the pub you know they were the builders had to kind of strip back all the years of sick and vomit on the kind of floorboards and kind of strip them back to make the bars and we had this mud wall that was supposed to be good for air circulation anyway it was a really fun time Mm -hmm. and despite our total lack of knowledge I mean we did an advert for chefs the week before we opened because apparently if you advertise too soon you got your chefs on early and then they got bored and left you 
So we waited for a week until opening Wow! and put this great advert out. And I remember standing outside our site in Covent Garden on a Sunday morning, waiting for chefs to turn up for the trial and two people turned up. And it was just like, oh, shit, what are we going to do? We've got no chefs. (laughs) So yeah, it was a baptism of fire. We started with six chefs, I think. And Mark did quite a lot of work in the kitchen at certain stages because with our very few chefs, I think that kitchen now has 25 chefs in it on a rotor. We started with six and we had this queue. Like we lied to everyone about when we were opening because we were so terrified. But then a, a great friend from school decided as a favor, she'd bring a food writer down to one of our soft launches who immediately published a massive review of us. So this, the cat was out of the bag and we had this queue and we had a queue going you know, this open kitchen. And I remember being in the kitchen, just seeing this queue, which never seemed to alter, just was there solidly. And the problem was that we were trying to be a street food restaurant where you could come in and out and eat in 45 minutes if you wanted, or two hours if you wanted to have a more special kind of dinner. But 45, forget it. I mean, people were queuing for an hour and a half then finally getting a table and waiting for an hour and a half for the food because we had so few chefs in the kitchen. We were lucky that our customers were very patient in the early days and we would feed them margaritas along the queue and apologize as much as possible. That's an amazing story. And it sounds like, you know, your career-wise, your sort of arrow hit the target back then. Um, I wonder then how you how you scaled it because you clearly there was the demand. How did you like increase the supply to meet that demand and you know what were the difficulties with that well it's incredibly hard to scale a restaurant and i think essentially a lot of restaurants are not scalable or if they are there's a limit to how much you can scale them so obviously there's a fast food concept that can be scaled quite easily that's incredibly simple but when you are going into a menu like Oaxaca's, where the cooking's actually, you know, everything's made in scratch in-house and, you know, we cared so much about the food and we had all these different ingredients coming in. We worked out it was actually quite hard to do. And I remember when we opened our second restaurant and it's really hard, you know, two restaurants, you suddenly, your time was split between two kitchens. Where was your second restaurant? In White City, in Westfield. So the staff in Covent Garden suddenly weren't seeing us as much. They were like, how come you aren't coming in? I, you know, I was expecting to see you on Saturday night. And that type of problem. And how do you keep your teams as enthused and passionate as the teams had been, you know, in the first restaurant? I mean, we didn't open our second site for kind of, I think, 18 months or two years or something like that. I'm not sure how long. But we did have this problem with the queue. So we definitely had the demand. So it seemed a logical step, but it was definitely much harder than we thought. We were lucky, though, because our investors had opened lots of restaurants and they were all about the culture of business. And their main thing was it's just got to be about the culture. As long as you and your team are having a good time at work, that is the most important thing. And actually, that was something that Mark and I both really believed in. It was a very Mm -hmm. common feeling that everyone works hard, so you might as well have fun while you're doing it. And so... The culture of the company was really the biggest thing for us, right from the word go. So we would, you know, quite early on, we took our teams to Mexico, not everyone, obviously, but our senior team would come to Mexico just really to show them what we're talking about, the passion of the produced ingredients, the markets, this total passion for food and cooking that is kind of seems to be innate in every Mexican I know and in in their whole culture. And to kind of try and really 
give our teams a sense of that because they needed to relay that to our customer. Because we were coming from a place where most people thought that Mexican food was Tex-Mex and that it wasn't very sophisticated. It wasn't very cool. A bit of naff, some people thought. So we had a great kind of knowledge barrier. And also we were cooking with ingredients like chipotles and anchos and ingredients that people really hadn't seen before. So, you know, it was absolutely paramount to us that our teams knew about the ingredients and could tell the customers about what was in all the street food dishes. Mm -hmm. I want to wind forward then to 2020. And I want to know what was managing a restaurant like under lockdown. And I ask that because we've had the founders of Cricket on this. Uh, Yeah podcast and they were like rabbits caught in headlights however they re-jigged re-assessed completely sort of changed their business model in the sense and and went to online and opened cloud kitchens and sort of met the demand that way and i wonder if you and and wahaka did a similar thing and how you know you kept the show on the road during lockdown so yeah i mean obviously it was it was a kind of crazy time, not least because the government seemed to have very little concept either of what it was doing or the impact of its very last minute decisions on, you know, who was allowed to open and when and suddenly shutting businesses like ours down when our kitchens were full of food and ingredients. So coping with the very changing kind of legal scenario was quite tough. But we were very lucky. We had been in the midst of quite a long, detailed project delivering delivery into one site. And it was something we'd always been rather nervous of because we were always very passionate about food quality. And we didn't quite understand how our food quality could stay kind of in a delivery system. So we'd really road tested our product and our packaging to help support, you know, good tacos and everything. So really luckily for us, when the first lockdown came, we pretty much were ready to switch to delivery across our entire estate, mm-hmm. which was a godsend. That was actually in the second lockdown, actually, because the first lockdown, everyone was shut. But in the first lockdown, we were still busy because we were cooking for the NHS. We kind of joined up with Angela Hartnett and Cook19 and kept our biggest kitchen open to doing that. And we got on board with Chefs and Schools, which is a charity I'm a trustee of. So we, I think, helped cook for 200,000 kind of hampers and meals that they sent out to kids who weren't being fed because they weren't at school or just food to take home to their parents. And it was a great way actually keeping the morale up because the biggest thing is your team and your morale. And I think the hardest thing for the restaurant industry, which basically essentially employs a whole group of people who love being around people. You know, hospitality is filled with people who love to be around other people. That's why they work in hospitality. And you suddenly take that away from people and say, you can't go out, you've got to stay at home, and we don't want you seeing anyone. And that's quite a big kind of shift. So we found that through this kind of being able to cook for someone and also helping other people, I think that was quite a strong motivation. There was a sense that there were lots of people out there faring pretty badly. And that collective kind of coming together and staff volunteering for packing up food and cooking food was a really big thing for us. And then we got our delivery kind of system in motion and that helped all the restaurants open up again. And once those restaurants were open up again for delivery, even with subsequent lockdowns, we were able to stay open just for takeaway. 
which essentially kept the sites open because any restaurateur will tell you there's a huge cost to shutting down a whole restaurant and then bringing it back up again, not least getting your staff back into a system of working again and the morale. So it was huge in terms of having some revenue coming in, but almost as much was the emotional and positive feedback for our teams on just having something to do, having something to talk about their teams and really doing very well on on delivery. You know, we've kind of won awards for how popular we are there and getting this amazing customer feedback from what we're doing. And have you updated recipes and have you changed the recipes? Because, uh, you know, Rick Campbell from Cricket said that they basically redesigned their menu to go online. Did you do a similar thing? No, we didn't, actually. It travels well. Yeah, our food travels really well. I mean, as someone who loves their tortillas piping hot straight off the Kamal, I personally struggle and I would always kind of try and heat up my tortillas part. But actually, most people think our food is amazing on delivery. I'm a bit of a perfectionist in that way. But, it, you know, it's it's completely different from anything out there. And, it, you know, it was wonderful to get messages from friends going, oh, thank goodness I had a Oaxaca takeaway and I didn't have to cook. And it was so good. Thank you so much. So it's kind of quite actually quite um, life affirming and heartwarming to mm. get all these lovely messages from people. But we were lucky. We didn't, we hardly had change anything actually. Yeah. So that was good. Thomas, you know, I want to move on to your, your new book, Meet Few Mexican, which I gather you wrote during lockdown. So I wonder first if you can um, introduce the book, why you wrote it and what your sort of ideal reader looks like. So um, I wrote this book because I was fascinated First of all, I remember doing an event about five years ago for Google and Q and the Crop Trust where a scientist said, you do realise, don't you? I was talking about the amazing biodiversity of Mexico. And she said, you do realise that it's actually called mega biodiverse. It's one of a handful of countries around the world that's actually classified as mega biodiverse. So to give you an idea, in the UK, we have about 1,500 plant species. And in Mexico, there are 50,000. Wow. So when you go there and you love food, you go to those markets and you're hit with the 200 varieties of chilies or the, you know, scores of varieties of corn in kind of dark blues and inky blacks and reds and shades of yellow and orange and white and tropical fruit and courgettes and amazing pumpkins and wild leaves and herbs. That biodiversity is a proper kind of allure, but also it's a kind of telescope back into how the Mexicans used to eat before globalization. So the Spanish conquered in 1400s, but before then, and they brought with them the sugarcane and the pig and, you know, the love of pork in Mexico is a kind of story from then on. But before that, the food was largely vegetarian and the protein source was from this amazing variety of wonderful beans and then ground nuts and seeds would make up protein in the sauces, which were called moles. So guacamole is an avocado sauce. So there was a very protein-rich, highly nutritious, vegetable-led diet with a maybe an occasional bit of fish, occasional wild bird shot down, but that basically was the diet. And what was really interesting to me is the modern way of eating now, the diets that we kind of know that we should be adopting are rich in vegetables. That's for the microbiome. You know, variety of vegetables is what people talk about the rainbow diet lots of fiber which are found in the vegetables and the fruits which is great for the microbiome as well fiber and a variety and then in terms of the planet we've got to be eating way less meat definitely better quality so the industrialized meat industry is 
calamitous for climate change. So it felt like a really fun way of, you know, nod to the pre-Hispanic beautiful Mexican diet, a celebration of wonderful vegetables, because in Mexico, the vegetables and fruits are so great, many of which you get here. And also a wonderful kind of way into a book that really offered a different way to eating vegetables and having fun with them. So Middle Eastern food, I think, is it's very easy to eat delicious vegetarian Middle Eastern food. But I don't think anyone had really done Mexican or had ever really thought about Mexico and that vegetarian kind of angle. So it was a really fun book to write. I wrote it in the winter lockdown, which was when most people I knew were kind of in the depths of despair, rather a bleak winter, nothing to do, been locked down for a long time already. But I was in a kind of world of Mexico and chilies and amazing produce and all around me in London, the local markets were still open, the local food shops were open, so I could get a hold of all the produce. And it was really fun testing the recipes on my kids and on my husband. The kids weren't always happy when I ramped up the spice too much, but you know, Mexican food is not always spicy, just the salsas are always quite hot. So it was a really fun book to write. And I and I hope, I mean, you talked about the perfect reader. This book really is for anyone who is sort of acknowledges that for climate and health, it is better to embrace more vegetables in your diet and to think what's a fun way to do that and what's a delicious way to do that and how can I have fun with a whole range of vegetables I can buy and, you know, show off my prayers in the kitchen to my friends or feed my family or have a party or, you know, shake a margarita. So it's a celebration. It's a celebration of vegetables and a lovely way to bring them into your cooking at home in a kind of slightly different way. That does sound amazing. And is it easy to get the sort of produce? You mentioned that, you know, the markets were open, you were able to scurry around and pick up the various spices. Can you pick them up in your average supermarket in the UK? You know, the vegetables themselves, you know, aubergines, cauliflowers, courgettes, beetroot, pineapple, mangoes, you know, apples. There's a massive range of fruit and vegetables that we can pick up really easily. And then the spices, the cumin, the allspice and the cinnamon, we can easily get. Some of the chilies now are in most supermarkets, like an ancho or chipotle. And then there are a couple of chilies that I try to introduce to the more adventurous cook who I thought might really get intrigued by the different flavors of these chilies. So just a few other chilies I brought in, like the cascabel, which is mild and fruity and earthy. Hibiscus flowers, which are really high in vitamin C and are just incredible when you blitz them and mix them with sugar to toss it over a donut or as a rim for a cocktail or even sprinkled over a salad. They're a bit like sumac, quite tart and citrusy. And those ingredients are all dried. They're very easy to either order online, places like Cool Chili Company sell them or Max Grocer. Or, you know, I won't mention the, the A word, but there's a big online retailer that sells those <laughs> things that I try to avoid because they don't pay their taxes. So essentially, it's very easy to buy a small pack of chilies to get you going mm-hmm. or do the recipes with some smoked pimento on from your cupboard. So I think the book, you can take it either way. You can deep dive in and think, wow, and learn about these chilies and how they transform the food. Or you can say, oh, I'm going to try this in my, my light touch version. I'm just going to settle for this you know, the stuffed courgette flowers on toast or these summer bean tostadas, which might not need anything, or the char-grilled courgettes, which just have a blackened chilli lime dressing. So it's just a fresh, a standard fresh green chilli that you char on a dry pan until it's blackened all over. 
and you blitz with water, fresh lime and a little bit of olive oil. And it produces this deliciously light, sparky, zippy little dressing that you can dress chargol courgettes with, which is really good over kind of whipped feta or goat's cheese or something. Sounds sensational, Thomasina. And as we look to the future, you know, what does the future hold for Thomasina Myers? I mean, doing the research for this podcast and, you know, going through your CV, it's a bit like sort of walking through a labyrinth. And I'm wondering um, <laughs> where next? I mean, I wish you could tell me. I think that'd be great, Doug. Can you help me navigate? Mm-hmm. I mean, Mex- Oaxaca's amazing. You know, I've, I've stepped back a bit. So I work, you know, a few days a week there, which is great. I talked about Chefs and Schools, which I'm trustee of, which is just the most fantastic charity, which is proving to the government that it's totally possible and actually necessary to feed kids on low incomes. I mean, particularly in schools, because with the cost of food increasing, the school actually is the one really sure way that kids on low incomes can eat one good meal of day if you actually take care of the food. And then, I mean, Wild Farm are a company that is essentially selling regenerative food at the moment, focusing on wheat and flour and helping farmers in Britain go on that regenerative journey to put biodiversity and healthy soil back onto their land and massively kind of get away from the inputs, the chemical inputs of herbicides and pesticides and fungicides that are essentially killing all our insects and our species. So they're a fascinating company that I've kind of been talking to. It feels like there's so much in the world of food, food and farming and soil and Mexico and all my passions for good food, that there is just so much in that whole field, many cross-sections and intersections between them all. So I just feel that I'm not really sure where my life's going, but it just feels rich with possibility and, and quite exciting. I'm pretty sure you could uh, draw quite a cool Venn diagram with all of those subjects. One day I do want to hear more. This isn't a podcast for it, but I do want to hear more about chefs and schools because I think that that's the most extraordinary blind spot, I think, in policy at the moment. But maybe we can talk about it on another podcast. But for the final questions, Thomasina, I want to know, what is the worst bit of advice you've been given? Uh, the worst piece of advice I've ever been given is Mexican food, you're mad, it's disgusting. <laughs> Pretty good. And what's your current top non-cooking related book recommendation? Ah, uh, wow. God, you've got me stumped. I, my mind is whirling. Yeah, I know. It's too difficult, isn't it? No, well, I just want to take you up into my room. I've got so many books by my bed. I have got... Um, Okay, if you can just, I'm just literally going to take this laptop up to my room. There are so many books at the moment coming out, which I find so fascinating. I'm reading a lot of literature about the colonization of the world by the British Empire, which I find fascinating. And um, there's a very good book about microcausae, which are the web of fungi that keep the soil alive. I'm reading Sorrow and Bliss by Meg Mason. That's my um, fiction. I've got Getting Things Done by David Allen, which is trying to make myself more efficient. I've got Catch-22, which I've been trying to read for ages. I've got Johan Harry's Stolen Focus, which is trying to get off my phone. And then I've got The Overstory by Richard Powers. Yeah. And then Merlin Sheldrake's Entangled Life is how the real power of fungi. Yeah, so that's my current reading list. Yes, that was a slight cheat on the book, but uh, we'll let you have it for sure. And my final question, I ask this to everyone, but um, what's, what's the one piece of advice you would give to our younger listeners who are looking to pursue a career in food? 
Uh, I think be solid on your belief because there is no point in going into business with a product that you don't absolutely love because your love and passion is going to be tested. So make sure you love in the first place and make sure you like your team because it is hard work setting up a business. So having a team that is good and complements your skills. No good going into business with someone who's got the same skill set, going to business with someone with a different skill set, and then you'll be much better set up. Like your team, love your products. Thomasina Myers, thank you for joining me. Is that good enough advice, do you think? <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening to the Wine Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Thomasina Myers. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode or indeed the series, why not like us, subscribe to us, and let your friends and colleagues know. Thank you. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.